Welcome to Wicked Crime, a Massachusetts true crime podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and a friendly reminder that listener discretion is advised. Today is kind of a dark one. We've talked a lot about murderers and serial killers of all different sorts, but not kids who kill. Massachusetts is naturally home to one of the most famous, earliest killer kids, Jesse Pomeroy. But he's not the only one, and I'm going to touch on a few in surrounding states because why not jam-pack as much disturbing material into this episode as I can, right? It's definitely a fascinating and creepy topic, though, because even adults committing murder is sometimes hard to wrap your head around. And there's cases where I'm sure these murderous children had a reason for why they did what they did, which is one thing, but it's another when we actually see young kids with an urge to kill. The youngest of which is Amarjeet Sada from a village called Mushahar in India. He was only eight years old when he killed for the first time, and it was his own cousin in 2006 who he beat to death. And they're also pretty sure he killed his eight-month-old baby sister as well. But the thing was, the family hid this, thinking that this was like their own private business and they could handle him, but obviously they couldn't. In 2007, he ended up taking a six-month-old girl, Kushibu Devi, from her school, strangling her, beating her with a brick, and he buried her in a shallow grave. Since the village knew this kid was, like, not right, his parents allowed the police to question him, and he admitted to killing her. And what's really creepy, and what creeped everybody out, was that he was just smiling the whole time and asking for more biscuits from the police. So clearly he had no concept of how bad this was, and they realized that he was not mentally well. Since he was so young, they couldn't arrest him even though he'd confessed to killing three other children, and instead he got sent to a children's home until he was 18. He was released in 2016, and apparently no one knows where he is. So that's great. I mean, we can hope that he got some sort of treatment or help for what was going on with him, but now he's just out there somewhere. And I'll link the Mamma Mia article about him on my website, wickedxcrime.wordpress.com. And this is actually sort of a problem when there's killers who are very young in age because in a lot of cases, people were at a loss at what to do with them. If they're too young, they can't really try them as an adult, even if they commit an adult crime. And then do you give someone that young a life sentence or lock them away until they're a certain age and then what happens to them when they get out? A good example of this is actually Craig Price, and he was known as the Warwick Slasher, and he killed four of his neighbors. When he was 13, he murdered Rebecca Spencer in 1983 and then stabbed Joan Heaton and her daughters, Melissa and Jennifer, when he was 15 in 1985. And these were violent murders. Joan had been beaten, strangled, and stabbed over 50 times with her own kitchen knives, so police believed that Craig didn't enter the house intending to murder the Heaton family, just maybe to rob them. Everyone was actually pretty freaked out because the laws in Rhode Island at the time made it so that when Craig went to juvenile detention center, he'd be out by the time he was 21. And during the whole process, he was another one who didn't show any kind of remorse, even threatened that he would make history when he got out of jail. By 1994, they were still working on his trial. People were scrambling to find a way to keep him locked up because it was a pretty serious offense that he was in there for, and who knows what he would do once he got out of jail. Even President Clinton flew to Rhode Island and expressed that he didn't agree that Craig should get out so early after such a serious crime, and the law didn't change. But Craig ended up assaulting a correctional officer after a fight, and it landed him with a 15-year sentence. And this had just continued to happen to him over the years because he kept getting more and more assault charges against him while he was locked up. 
but it really came to a head in 2019 when he stabbed fellow inmate Joshua Davis with a knife he'd managed to make. That gave him another 25 years in prison, and at that point, he was already 45. So you can imagine that this guy might have done some bad shit once he got out of prison. And there's a good chance he would have hurt more people because instead of trying to get out early on good behavior, his time in prison was littered with violent charges that kept him incarcerated for longer. But what happens when someone who shouldn't get out of prison does get released on good behavior? So there's other killer kids from the Northeast, but we'll talk more about those later. We do, however, have two well-known ones that I could find here in Massachusetts, the most notorious being Jesse Pomeroy, and he was a sick one. Naturally, us here in Massachusetts have the youngest person to ever be convicted of first-degree murder, and he was only 14 years old. So Jesse was born on November 29, 1859, to Thomas and Ruth Ann Pomeroy. They already had a son at the time, two-year-old Charles, and you'd think another boy would be a good thing. Jesse, however, was like a very fussy, colicky baby. They also said that he was born with a cleft lip. Some of the pictures and depictions of him that you can find online, he doesn't have that. So maybe that was just like a little detail that weirdly enough got added in over time. But he does have a mustache in the pictures when he's older. So maybe it's hiding under there. He was a sickly kid. And the story goes that some illness ended up leaving him with like a milky colored eye, which creeped his dad out. And on top of all that, apparently he had an abnormally large head. Now, I admit, when I was listening to the Serial Killers podcast about Jesse, I did laugh a little at that. Like, here's this kid with a googly eye and a big head, and no wonder he wasn't right. And yes, his looks did have kids bullying him, which does not help the situation at all. And despite the fact that his mother doted on him, his father was kind of embarrassed by his looks, and he would actually beat Jesse very badly. He'd make him get naked, tie him to a post outside, and whip him. Thomas was also abusive towards Ruth Ann and Charles as well, and he was both a Civil War veteran and an alcoholic, so you can imagine that these two things probably were some of the factors as to why he was so abusive. At only four years old, Jesse was allegedly said to have been caught torturing a kitten, and I do wonder how much truth there is to that because wouldn't it have just been sort of like the worst fact to throw at this twisted kid, but maybe he was that young when this started. After a particularly brutal beating from his father, Jesse killed his mother's pet birds by ripping off their heads. And Ruth Ann suspected that it was Jesse, but in what becomes a really toxic theme in this story, she didn't do anything. She just figured that he was acting out because he was like being bullied at school and abused at home, so she just kind of brushed it off. The most she really did at the time was forbid him to have any pets. Having her ignore some of those things definitely wasn't beneficial. And what is also yet another negative influence on Jesse was these Western novels he would read. And he was a little too young and messed up to be reading some of the stuff he was because they would talk about torture and brutality, which definitely made an impact on him. He started bullying smaller kids, which totally tracks because why wouldn't he? He was being bullied and abused, so in order to cope, he started taking the role of the bully. But the problem was, it didn't just end there. His first real victim was four-year-old William Payne. On December 26, 1871, a 12-year-old Jesse lured William with the promise of candy to a secluded and abandoned shed out on Powdern Horn Hill. Just like what his father did to him, he stripped William naked, tied him to a beam, and whipped him. And believe it or not, this was the mildest thing he does to any other kid throughout this entire timeline of crime. He left William there, and this poor kid isn't found until two men walking nearby hear his cries, and they find him half-conscious and hypothermic. He was so traumatized that he didn't tell who did it, only that it had been an older kid 
which obviously wasn't much to go on. Two months later, Jesse struck again. On February 22nd, he lured seven-year-old Tracy Hayden to Powderhorn Hill on the promise that he was taking him to see some soldiers. Instead, he did the same thing he'd done to William. He stripped off his clothes, tied him up, and whipped him. But things escalated when he grabbed a board and beat Tracy with it to the point of breaking his nose and either loosening or knocking out his front teeth. He threatened Tracy that he would castrate him if he told anyone. Jesse then left, and eventually Tracy was able to get dressed and get out of there. But he was so scared of Jesse that he didn't tell anyone who it was. He just said the boy had brown hair, which once again wasn't too much to go on. A few months later, on May 20th, 1872, here comes Jesse again, offering eight-year-old Robert Meyer a ticket to the circus, but they instead go up to Powderhorn Hill, and once again, things escalated. He did his whole strip, bind, and whip routine on Robert, but then he started to force Robert to say a bunch of swears because Jesse had figured out that swearing made him very uncomfortable, and apparently during all these, Jesse was smiling and hopping around excitedly, so clearly he was having a good time. That was fun for him, as sad as that was. He beat Robert with a stick, and then he actually masturbated in front of him. And to me, this is where everything takes a very sharp turn into even worse territory, because not only was Jesse enjoying hurting these kids, but he was getting sexual gratification from it, and this is just sadism at its finest. He then threatened to castrate Robert if he told, and that was it. Robert did tell the police what happened to him, but he didn't say who had done it. And at this point, people were starting to get kind of concerned, because... Three boys had been brutally beaten and the paper started referring to the culprit as the boy torturer. There was even a $500 reward offering for legitimate information on the real identity of the torturer. And that may have been a mistake offering that money because it was a lot of money at the time and naturally everyone got involved trying to figure it out. And because of this, they ended up on the wrong track entirely, which worked out well for Jesse. Because even though police and Charleston residents were all looking for him, Jesse still went out and attacked another kid. On July 22nd, he promised seven-year-old John Balch some money if he helped with a errand that he had. But instead, they ended up at Powderhorn Hill, where Jesse stripped John, bound his wrists together, and tied the rope to a beam overhead. He then beat him viciously all over with his belt, and once again, he masturbated during the assault. He told John that he had to stay there and that he would slit his throat if he came back and he was gone. And once Jesse left, John did lay there sobbing for two hours, too scared to go anywhere, but luckily someone found him and got him help. This was actually a pretty important summer for the Pomeroy family, though. After more beatings from Thomas to Jesse, Ruthann finally had enough of her husband's bullshit, and she threatened him with a knife and kicked him out. Thankfully, she finally filed for divorce and decided to take her boys to move to South Boston to open up a dress shop. But there's a good chance that she was very suspicious that the boy torturer was Jesse since she recognized that the things happening to these young boys were very similar to what Thomas had done to her son. And so the move to South Boston might have also been an, an attempt to protect him from getting in trouble, which I'll tell you right now does not work. They moved in August, and only a few weeks later, Jesse found another victim. He runs into seven-year-old George Pratt looking for shells on the beach, and Jesse offered him a quarter to help with some errands. But instead, he took him to an abandoned boathouse where he stripped him and beat him with his belt. This time, he even jabbed the kid with sewing needles and bit him hard on both his face and his butt, which is something that he never does again. But he threatened George like usual and left. But the next victim, six-year-old Harry Austin, gets even more brutal treatment. On September 5th, Jesse promised him some money, 
but led him to a vacant railroad bridge. He stripped, bound, and whipped him as usual, but this time he also stabbed him under both arms, slashed him all over the back, and he was supposedly about to cut the kid's penis off, and luckily he was interrupted, because that would have been horrible, and he ran off, and Harry was brought to the hospital, though he was too scared to tell anyone who hurt him, and you kind of can't blame him, honestly. Only six days later, Jesse went after seven-year-old Joseph Kennedy, and he did his usual, but this time he made him wash his wounds in salt water and recite some fucked-up version of the Our Father that really distressed him. But considering some of these other kids, what they went through, he got off a little easier, in my opinion. Less than a week after that, so you can imagine there's like this real need to hurt others if Jesse just keeps going after people so often. He went after five-year-old Charles Gould. He told him that he would take him to go see the soldiers, and instead he tied him to a pole near the railroad tracks, and this time he pulled out two knives and started to cut him. And the cuts were so bad that Charles would need five stitches on his face alone. Jesse was interrupted by workers, thank God, and he didn't have time to make his usual threats to Charles. So Charles actually told the police who had done it, and he said it was a big bad boy with a funny eye. And that was better than nothing because he actually described Jesse's milky eye. Police enlisted the help of Joseph Kennedy, who was the previous victim, in late September, and they decided to take him to schools to see if he can point out his attacker. They go to Jesse's school and then his classroom, but somehow, and maybe because he was scared, Joseph didn't point him out. So Jesse was elated. He was like, LOL, I got away with it. And because he was so proud of himself, he boldly decided to go wander around in front of the police station. And here we all are saying like, well, why the hell are you going to do that? This kid's a dumbass. But the thing is, it's correct. But remember that he didn't think like most people thought. He figured that he was invincible at this point. So making a reckless and cocky move like that was just like par for the course. So there he was like laughing at the cops who didn't catch him. But lo and behold, Joseph Kennedy was actually at the police station. They saw each other and Joseph tells police that it's Jesse who attacked him, this kid in front of him, and because of that cockiness, police take him into custody. And they question him, but he denies everything, even though his physical description is an obvious match. And I guess he even fell asleep at the station, so he couldn't have been all that distressed. But they did eventually threaten him with a hundred years of jail time if he didn't confess, so he did. And he has this weird autobiography that he wrote years later once he was in jail, and I'll post a link to that. And he essentially claims that he was innocent, and one of the arguments that he makes is because he was forced to confess. And the thing is, he might actually, like, have some, like, a good point in a modern courtroom. Because here's this 12-year-old boy being questioned without an adult present, without a lawyer present, and then he's threatened to confess, so obviously he does because he doesn't want to get thrown into jail for 100 years. And it very much reminds me of, like, making a murderer when police question Brendan Dassey without his mom there. And I'm not saying that Jesse isn't guilty, but you can imagine that a 12-year-old boy might confess to a lot of things if there's police threatening him in some way. But he ends up going before a juvenile justice magistrate, and all the victims from South Boston are called for to testify against him. Meanwhile, you have Ruth Ann showing up at his defense, crying and telling the magistrate, Oh, Jesse's a good boy. And obviously, like, you want your mom in your quarter, but, like, Jesus Christ, lady, your kid's, like, masturbating while stabbing little kids, so maybe you're better off getting him help. And when they asked Jesse why he did it, he just said, I couldn't help myself. And since he was so young, he couldn't go to jail, so instead he was sentenced to six years at the Lyman School for Boys in Westboro, Mass., which, if you can remember from the Asylum episode, definitely wasn't the sort of place that was going to help him. 
this was basically just a place to put boys that were either orphans or had issues with the law, among other things, and they could just be locked away in there until they turned 21 and just be sent back out into the world. A lot of boys there went for petty crimes, which Jesse was one of the very few who was there for a crime that involved a knife. And he was told that if he behaved well, he'd get out before his six-year sentence, so that became his plan. Unlike Craig Price, Jesse was a model resident and even became hall monitor. He would threaten to blackmail boys in order to get them to tell him the harsh punishments they'd received because he kind of got off on that. He liked hearing about the torture these boys would get because he couldn't be the one torturing them. And there was all sorts of bad stuff happening, like getting locked up in a cell and chained to the floor. You were fed bread and water if you were punished. You would be put in a straitjacket. You'd be beaten. He listened to these boys' stories, much like when he would read these books about Native Americans when he was younger. Meanwhile, on the outside, Ruth Ann was here fighting really hard to get him out, which once again, I guess proves she loves her kid, but I don't think she was equipped to handle him like she thought she was. And it's true that the Lyman School wouldn't give him the psychological help he needed, but at least he wasn't running around loose in Boston. But Jesse's good behavior and his mother's pleas eventually worked. A state investigator actually took some pity on Ruth Ann and he helped release Jesse with the agreement that she would look after him and he'd work in her dress shop so she could keep an eye on him. So on February 6, 1874, Jesse got out of Lyman at 14 years old after being there for only 16 months. And as you can imagine, this was a really bad idea. Because a month after he was released, he was back at it again. And Ruth Ann was supposed to be watching him, but instead she allowed him to go open up her dress shop on his own. Which was a bad fucking move on her part. But her other son, Charles, actually had a newspaper stand right across the street and he didn't keep an eye on Jesse either. What ended up happening was another part-time employee, Rudolph Kaur, was around Jesse's age and he showed up and started chatting with Jesse. Then not long after, 10-year-old Katie Curran showed up and she was looking to get a notebook for school. She'd been sent there by another store owner who thought maybe Ruth Ann's store would have it. And the thing was, not everyone knew Jesse was out of jail yet, so if they know that, they probably wouldn't have sent this girl over there. But Jesse saw this as an opportunity, so he sent Rudolph to get some meat or something, like, get this kid out of here. And when he left, he was like, oh yeah, Katie, come on downstairs. I think we might have some notebooks in the basement. And while they were walking down there, he grabbed her from behind and he put his hand over her mouth, with one hand and the other hand he used to slit her throat and he nearly decapitated her in the process. He stabbed her viciously in the abdomen and genitals and then hid her body down the basement under some stone and ash and this was the first time that he knew without a doubt that he killed someone, not just left them unsure if they might live or die. He went back upstairs when his brother showed up at the shop and he didn't suspect anything. What's really annoying is that when people started looking for Katie, Ruthie Ann told everyone that she had been with Jesse at the shop the whole time, so there is his alibi. And I'll tell you, it's getting harder and harder to excuse this woman, but I guess she just really loved her evil little child. But what helped Jesse too was that everyone believed that it couldn't have been him because he only went after little boys. And so there was this rumor that someone had seen Katie get into a carriage. So the widely accepted story was that she was kidnapped. Even Rudolph saying that Jesse and Katie had interacted didn't change anything. But now at least everyone in the neighborhood knew that Jesse was back around, so they all warned their kids to stay away from this kid with the big head and the milky eye. And he tried pretty hard to lure kids away with candy and money, but thankfully it didn't work. Except in one case, a five-year-old Harry Field, 
He tried to offer Harry like five cents to help him with directions, and he even managed to drag him into a secluded area, but another teenager showed up and stopped anything from happening. But on April 22nd, Jesse would claim his last victim. Four-year-old Horace Millen was new to town, so his family had no idea who Jesse was or the horrible stories about him. He met Jesse outside a candy store and offered to share the cake he bought with Jesse. And that's the part that just like really fucking breaks my heart is that the sweet little four-year-old boy was like, come on, let's share a cake together. Let's be friends. And then Jesse took him to Salmon Hill Beach and tried to cut his throat. Horace put up a fight, but Jesse was bigger and he cut his arms and hands in the struggle and eventually Horace's throat. And after Horace had died, he actually stabbed him in the eye. And then he went for a stroll around Boston Common. A few hours later, Horace's body was found and the police suspected Jesse immediately because like, hi, he's our resident psycho. Police took him in for questioning and he once again swore he was innocent, but he couldn't really give an alibi for the time that they thought Horace died. And he had a cut on his face, which he claimed was from shaving, but it could have easily been from someone trying to defend themselves. And then they found a bloody knife on Jesse. And of course it matched the kind of knife used on Horace. And then finally, they matched Jesse's boot to the boot mold they'd taken down at the beach. And yet this kid still says he was innocent. Now, there's a good chance they actually took him to go see Horace's body, and that made him break down. And it was because of that that he admitted to what he did. But it seemed like his big concern was his mom finding out and being disappointed in him. So I think he did actually, like, love his mother, however way that he could manage to do that. They arrested him for Horace's murder, but he still claimed that he had nothing to do with Katie's disappearance. And at this point, he's already in trouble for murdering Horace, and not long after, his mother has to sell her dress shop, probably because the whole town wants her gone. And I literally wrote in my notes, stupid-ass Ruthann was upset the town hates her. But, like, if you hadn't gotten your son on a lineman, then maybe none of this would ever have happened. But so what happens is, someone else bought the dress shop, and when they're cleaning out the basement, what do they find but Katie's body? or the remains of Katie's body. And Jesse tries to deny that it was him that killed her, but police, they then threaten his family, like, oh, well, we'll just have to arrest them because it was her dress shop. And because of this, he doesn't want his family getting in trouble for what he did. He admits that he killed her. When Jesse finally went on trial on December 8th, 1874, his liars tried to argue that he was insane, which is not like they were wrong. He definitely had something going on with him, but the jury didn't really go for it. I'm assuming if they had, he would have been locked up in a place like Bridgewater State Hospital, like Jane Toppin was. Instead, they deliberated for only five hours and reached a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder. Technically, at the time, Jesse could have been hung for this, but because of his age, he was sentenced to life in prison and also that he had to serve his time in solitary confinement so he'd be away from everybody else. And a lot of people want him to be executed, but it was the governor who ruled against it. And this then becomes the youngest person who's ever been sentenced to life in prison for first-degree murder. And his prison sentence is also the longest ever served. He actually stayed in solitary confinement for 40 years. You can only imagine what that did to him. But his mother was allowed to visit him, and she did every month until she died. He did try to escape a few times, but they never worked. While in prison, he actually wrote a whole autobiography, like I mentioned before, of his life. And he got very into poetry and learning about languages. And he was actually said to be very good at German. In 1917, he was allowed out with the general population. And I don't think he caused any issues. And he was eventually brought to Bridgewater State Hospital in 1929, where he eventually died at 74 years old on September 29, 1932. 
Jesse is sort of an extreme case, obviously, and if you look through his autobiography, he makes his whole life sound very normal and argues for his innocence. I can guess that he really wasn't innocent, though, considering all this evidence against him, but at the same time, there's always sufficient room for doubt in any case, especially when you have police threatening a kid to confess. Could you imagine if it was, like, really his brother or something the whole time? I think the likelihood for killers to be as young as Jesse is much slimmer than when we see teenagers committing acts of extreme violence. But the closest thing that resembled to Jesse's crimes, to me, in this area anyway, was on August 2nd, 1993 in Savannah, New York, when 13-year-old Eric Smith murdered 4-year-old Derek Robbie. He beat him with rocks, strangled him, and then sodomized his body with a stick. He arranged Derek's shoes, smashed a banana in his lunchbox, and poured out the Kool-Aid in there too. He admitted to what he'd done a week after it happened, but he couldn't really explain why he did it, just that he lost control. And they tried to analyze him, and they didn't really find anything going on with him, except he was prone to bursts of anger and probably had developmental issues due to an epilepsy medication his mother took while she was pregnant with him. And it was actually known to cause birth defects. And Eric was bullied in school, so maybe, just like Jesse, attacking Derek was a way to feel powerful over someone because he didn't feel that himself. And he was given nine years to life in prison, and every time he's tried to appeal his case, he gets denied and remains in prison. But like I said, these instances of young kids killing isn't as common as teenagers. Like Willie Boskett, who, in 1978, at 15 years old, he shot and killed two people during an armed robbery in New York City. And because of this, New York changed its law so that kids as young as 13 could be convicted of murder if they were guilty instead of getting out early because of their age. Willie is currently serving 82 years to life in prison. There's also Anthony Barbero, who on December 30th, 1974, at 17 years old, shot at people on the street from a third floor window of Olean High School in New York. He killed three people and wounded 11 and before he could actually be convicted, on November 1st, 1975, he hung himself in prison. And we have John Cates from New York City, who on March 20th, 2009, met up with 47-year-old George Weber for a Craigslist hookup and ended up stabbing him 50 times, which he claimed was self-defense. But he got 25 years to life in prison. What I find different about these cases is that they have, like, very adult themes, like armed robbery, gun violence, and sex. It's a different animal to me than, like, Jesse Pomeroy, who was hurting and killing people because he liked it. And it's just very fascinating and tragic, like, seeing this view on mental illness and extreme emotion that can really affect people under the right or wrong, I guess, circumstances. So finally, we have our last case today, which is a teenage murderer from Massachusetts. Also, if you want to learn more about any of the previous cases I mentioned, feel free to check out my sources because there's more meat to a lot of them than what I threw at you. But anyway, on January 19, 2007, 16-year-old John Odgren brought a kitchen knife to Lincoln Sudbury High School in Sudbury, Mass. He claimed that he'd been reading a lot of Stephen King and grew increasingly paranoid because of it. At that point, John had already been diagnosed with a variety of mental disorders like Asperger's syndrome, anxiety, depression, ADHD, and bipolar disorder, and this unfortunately made him a victim of bullying because with the Asperger's, it makes social interaction and social cues very difficult to understand. So you can imagine that there was like a lot going on with him. On that day he came to school, he randomly cornered 15-year-old James Allenson in the bathroom and stabbed him to death. He didn't even know James. There is reason to believe that he regretted what he did because he asked for help and even was said to say, don't let him die, it was all me, I did this, I just went crazy, which is from an article on Patch.com. 
His defense tried to argue that he was having some kind of paranoid or psychotic episode which triggered him to murder James. But the prosecution said that he was clearly, like, premeditating this whole thing to some degree because he had brought a knife to school with the intention to use it. And he had previously brought a toy gun and a pocket knife to school at different occasions. The jury deliberated for two days but eventually found John guilty of first-degree murder and he was sentenced to life in prison for what he did to James. Which, like, I can see both sides of it, but... But was he really as mentally ill as his parents and defense made him out to be? I don't know. And also, you can't paint the picture that every person that has Asperger's is just, like, gonna go out and kill someone if they get too worked up. Because that is certainly not true. And I'm not a psychologist by any means, so I can't sit here and try to analyze the inner workings of all these kids. But maybe this is just a big reminder to not bully people, don't abuse kids, and end mental health stigma. Which all sounds really nice to me, personally. So killer children, how fun. I've only listed a few out there. There's a lot more, although considering all the other people I've covered, I think it's the adults to really look out for, not kids, usually. Unless you have like a neighbor kid that's like trying to light squirrels on fire or something, then maybe maybe look out for them. But anyway, you can find all my sources and read my blog on this episode at my website, wickedxcrime.wordpress.com. And I have a lot of good sources for this episode, like Murderpedia is awesome because it compiles a lot of articles together. So I'll link all the cases I've used it for, the Serial Killers podcast, Serial Killing A podcast, an article on WBurr, Patch.com, the Providence Journal, and some others. But like I said, I'm going to list them all. You can find me on my website, on Twitter at Wicked underscore Crime, on Instagram at Wicked X Crime, and you can also find me on Facebook if you search Wicked Crime. Music in this episode is by someone who I don't think is a kid and hopefully isn't a killer, Kevin McLeod. Remember, take care of yourself, look after yourself, be nice to the kids you know, and animals, and everyone else too, I guess. Thank you for listening, and I will see you later. Bye.